Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We're continuing our series, The Boundless Compassion of God, with a message entitled, The Gentile Mission is On. So turn to your Bibles to Jonah chapter 1, verses 14 to 17, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. once had a mentor who constantly reminded me that you never know when you'll round a corner in this life and suddenly find yourself in a world you hardly recognize. Everything will change. Oh, he meant it to say that, that we must never become comfortable with our present life or even take things for granted. God has his ways of both shaping and designing our character that we might grow in holiness. He's also ways of fitting us for the task that he's designed for us to walk. We need to trust him. You know, I have to wonder whether Jonah the prophet had any idea how one fateful year in his life would change everything. And it began in dramatic fashion. The word of the Lord comes to him, commanding him to leave Israel and travel to Nineveh and then to cry out against the city. That in itself changed everything. But the way in which Jonah arrived there Had he known it from the beginning, well, that would have surprised him. God designs our ways. Proverbs 16, verse 9 says, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. God's ways always win over our ways. Now, in the end, as we know, Jonah does end up in Nineveh, just as God directed him. But Jonah's rebellion leads to a chastening, but also to a rescue. And furthermore, the rescue that God sent was a type of the resurrection of Jesus. There's so much to talk about. When we left off in our account of Jonah, there was a great storm. The Gentile sailors have just discovered the reason for the storm had everything in the world to do with the man who had paid a fare and was crossing the Mediterranean Sea with them. He was running from the Creator's plan for his life, and God was determined to block his way. We also notice the contrast between the Gentile pagan sailors and the Hebrew prophet. The sailors are praying. The prophet is sleeping. And then we notice that Jonah wants to die, but the sailors want to live. Now, we found that at the close of the section in Jonah that we read yesterday. See, Jonah 1, 11 to 13 says, Then they said to him, What shall we do to you, that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous, He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to the dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. We notice that Jonah did not say, look, I need to repent and you need to drop me off on the nearest shore and then I can go and fulfill my calling to go to the city of Nineveh and cry out against it. Instead, he says, look, you need to hurl me into the sea, then I'll be drowned and you'll be spared. But the sailors want nothing to do with that plan. They're rowing hard to get to land, but the storm has increased in strength and they realize they can't fight against God. See, a great many people have have thought the book of Jonah was of greater significance than simply telling the story of one man's battle against God's will for his life and about God's concern for the Gentiles. See, they thought that in this story, there is a wider narrative. Jonah represents an attitude that was found in Israel. Let me explain. Do you remember what Jesus did on the Monday, right after he had ridden into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday? You know, he came back to Jerusalem on Monday from where he was staying in Bethany. 
And on his way in, he stopped at a fig tree that was standing there beside the road, and he went to look for a fig. But it wasn't the season for figs, and so he cursed the fig tree, and it withered. You know, the usual question that often gets asked is this, I mean, what did that fig tree ever do to him? But a little reflection tells us it was a symbolic action. Leviticus 23 verse 22 says, And when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. You know, whether it was standing grain or fruit trees near the edge of the property or along the roadway, all of that was to be left for two groups of people. The first was for the poor, and then the second for the traveler or for the person visiting Israel. See, in many cases, the travelers were Gentiles. And the point had been that the land and the produce of the land was to be a blessing from God. The overflow of that blessing was to reach as far as the Gentiles. See, I think the cursing of the fig tree is a symbolic action taken by Jesus to showcase that the Gentiles were also to receive a blessing. But all Israel had left over for the Gentiles was a curse. And so Jesus curses this attitude. The next thing Jesus did on that Monday is that he entered into Jerusalem, went straight over into the temple, drove out the money changers and the merchants selling sacrificial animals. You know, it's generally agreed that the place where this was going on was the court of the Gentiles. That's to say, in the worship of Israel, Israel had crowded out the Gentiles from the temple, so there was no place left for them. And yet when Solomon dedicated the first temple, well, let's listen to a part of his prayer. When the temple was being dedicated, 1 Kings 8, 41 to 43, records Solomon's prayer. He says, Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country for your name's sake, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm, when he comes and prays toward this house, here in heaven, your dwelling place, and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. See, the temple had a number of functions, but it can't be denied that one of those functions was to serve as an evangelistic call, to call the nations to come to the temple and worship the one true God. That's why Jesus was so enraged in his day. That's why he cursed the fig tree. That's why he drove the money changers from the temple. Do you remember what he said on that day? He said, my house shall be called a house of prayer. And then he added, for all nations. And that brings us back to Jonah, the man who was not ignorant that the God of Israel, the God he served, not only loved Israel, but that he also loved the nations. Had God no interest in the nations, he would not have sent Jonah to go out and cry against the sins of Nineveh. And so to many, the book of Jonah is this radical tract published against Israel as she refused to bring the saving gospel of a God who was calling the world to come to him and to be saved. Abraham had been told that through him and his offspring, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Instead, at the time of Jonah, Israel herself had refused to go to the temple and had despised the covenant, had become idolatrous, and to add to those sins, had a contempt for the Gentiles. 
And here is Jonah is asleep in the bottom of the boat. The Gentiles are crying out to their gods, praying in ignorance to no effect, but praying nonetheless. And while Jonah hardens his heart in unbelief, the Gentiles are looking for a way to appease the great creator of the universe. That's the greater drama of the book of Jonah. Jonah represents a growing hardness in Israel. And the Gentile mariners represent Gentiles all over the world who would be open to hearing the gospel if someone would only bring it to them. See, we can't move on too quickly from here, for we're required to apply this matter in our day. You know, in our country, the greatest opportunities for evangelism lie among the many people groups from countries around the world that continue to pour into this country year after year. Many of them are especially open to the gospel. And at the very same time, many from European backgrounds who now reside in this blessed land for generations are expressing an ever-increasing hostility to the gospel. And yet a great many churches simply have not grasped nor made definitive plans as to how to reach out to new immigrants in our land. We don't have copies of Bible translations in the various languages of the immigrants in our foyers, ready to be picked up by our church members and given to neighbors and work colleagues and so forth from the various lands. You know, some of us even express alarm that the cultural balance of this nation is irreversibly shifting, while still we ignore the call to reach out to these very people who belong to the peoples of the world. In truth, we may look at ancient Israel and cluck our tongues and wag our heads at the hardness of their hearts. We see it exemplified in Jonah. But it turns out that the book of Jonah is a very dangerous book indeed, for it invites us to examine our hearts, whether we, like him, would rather board a ship and run from the clear command of God. Jesus said, preach the gospel to all nations, and in this amazing day, The nations have come to us, and all too often we have not inquired as to how we might reach out to them. May God have mercy on us if that's our problem. Let's turn to him and confess that we have not loved the nations as he has loved the nations. This month, we celebrate the commitment of our monthly partners with the launching of a new monthly partner initiative, the 1119 Fellowship. Based in Deuteronomy, the 1119 Fellowship is critical to our continued efforts to share the gospel with a new generation and to help teach in a way that can be trusted and that will build a firm foundation for a life in Christ. As of this past July, we celebrate 674 monthly partners, all committed to sustaining and growing the mission of Bible teaching you can trust. In the months ahead, we're asking you to join our monthly partner, 1119 Fellowship, as we march toward 1,000 participants. Join us this month, become a part of the 1119 Fellowship, and for more information or to sign up today, visit backtothebible.ca fellowship or simply give us a call at 1-800-663-2425. Together, let us ensure that the Word of God is being declared to a new generation. The mariners are rowing hard to get to land. The sea is growing ever more violent. Jonah 1, 14-16 says, Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life 
and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Notice the way these men pray. You know, when the storm first began, each man was praying to his own God, and then Jonah declares he worships the God of heaven, and the men are terrified. Now, at the thought of throwing the prophet of the God of heaven overboard, even though he's a rebellious prophet, still these men fear to do that. But notice how their prayer has changed. Notice how they start. O Lord, they pray, or O Yahweh, God of Israel, whom we now know to be the creator of all things. You know, I think it's a safe bet to argue that these men have never prayed that way before. The question then is this. Do these men at this point in time renounce their pagan gods and cling to the one and only true God? You know, our text never addresses that question. You know, it's quite possible that being polytheists, they simply added the name of the Lord to the list of the other gods they already had. In the future, it is possible that when they prayed, they prayed to the Lord, but they also continued to pray to the other gods that they customarily addressed. But please also remember that these men had seen the Lord do something that their gods simply couldn't do. You know, we might also want to remember some of the pagans in Scripture who did turn to the living God. You might remember Rahab, the the prostitute from Jericho. Eventually, she's listed in the genealogy that leads to Jesus. Or we might remember Ruth the Moabite woman who once worshipped Moloch, who told then her mother-in-law, your people shall be my people and your God shall be my God. Or we might think of Naaman, the Syrian military commander, Yeah, the man who was an enemy of Israel, he was healed of leprosy and said, Behold, I know there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. That's to say, he had come to believe that there is no God but this one God. From a polytheist to a monotheist who threw himself upon the mercy of the one true God of Israel. See, I mention all of this just so that we won't think it impossible that Jonah was even now unwittingly becoming an evangelist and a missionary to the Gentiles. And I mention all of this so that we won't think it's impossible that some of these men on the boat won't be among the great company of the redeemed in the final day, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. That's why it's so important to read the book of Jonah slowly, lest we miss these valuable lessons. Well, notice also, not just to whom they pray, but what they pray. Rather than being unconcerned with Jonah's life, they recognize what a potential sin they're about to commit. It becomes a matter of great concern for them. Oh, Lord, don't destroy us for hurling this man into the sea, for in doing this, we are surely killing him. But when we come to the end of the book, we're going to find Jonah sitting and sulking out in the desert, completely unconcerned for the lives of the men and women of Nineveh. Again, the the contrast is startling. And so the sailors lay a hold of Jonah and throw him into the sea, and the sea ceases its raging. You know, even though our text doesn't say so, it must have happened instantly. You know, if the storm had slowly dissipated, you you wouldn't have expected so strong a reaction. You know, instantly these men recognized that the Lord is not like their gods, you know, who fights with the forces of chaos trying to subdue them. Rather, the Lord controls the storm. 
It's his storm. He either commands it to rage or he commands it to cease. That's why these men have prayed, Oh Lord, you have done as you pleased. Unlike our gods, you command all things and they submit to you. You know, our text says the men respond in two ways. You know, first the passage says they they offered up a sacrifice to the Lord. And I have to assume this happened when the ship came to dry land. I mean, they couldn't have done it on board the ship. But the actual practice that after such an ordeal, they, they offer up a sacrifice to the Lord, well, it's actually not difficult to understand. After all, all ancient people have offered sacrifices to their deities. See, the practice of sacrificing is as old as the human race. There's something in the human consciousness that seems aware that life or blood must be spilled in order to find peace with God. See, I like to say that if we thought about it today, we would readily agree. Something has to die in order for us to live. You know, whenever we eat, you know, be it meat or some form of grain, something always needs to die for us to live. The same principle is true, you know, for us to live spiritually. A death must occur. You know, there must be some reminder that God's attitude towards us for our sins must be atoned for. But then we find that the men do more. They make vows to the Lord. That is, they make a promise to the God of heaven. Again, one has to wonder what it is they promised and were not told. You know, the Midrash is an ancient Jewish commentary of the Old Testament. And the Midrash states that these mariners threw their idols into the sea. They returned to Joppa. They made their way to Jerusalem and became proselytes, converts of the one true God. You know, again, I think I need to add here that the only authoritative text that we have doesn't say that. But it is, as we have all noted, you know, hardly beyond the realm of possibility. Our text now goes on instantly back to Jonah, now in the ocean. Jonah 1.17 says, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Let's start with the most obvious issue before us. It's verse 17 that has caused a great many people to doubt the historicity of this book. The Hebrew simply says a great fish. I mean, it gives no details as to what kind of a fish it was, just that it was very large. So it's understandable that, you know, we might think it's a whale. You know, the ancient Hebrews were not mariners. They didn't make a distinction between marine mammals and fish. So they simply used one word for everything. It could be anything from a whale to, you know, a giant whale shark or a species that no longer exists. But the real question continues to be, look, It's just not possible for a human being to live in the gut of a whale or a fish or whatever it was for more than a few minutes. You'd be immediately deprived of oxygen and you'd die. But to those who make this point, I would say you've missed the entire point of the book of Jonah. God oversees the chaos. Yep, the religions around Israel did fear the chaos. Their gods, they thought, had not succeeded in subduing chaos. It was always at the door. But Jonah's God, Israel's God, the great creator God, the God of heaven, who is Lord over all, rules all things, and nature is subject to his command. He calmed the storm. Storm didn't just dissipate. He directed the fish to swallow Jonah. I mean, why could God not direct as well that Jonah would live in the belly of that fish for three days? See, the real question is not just a question of miracles, whether or not God does them, It's really a question of whether God rules over all things. You know, to those who think not, the question of whether a man can survive in a fish for three days, well, that's already answered. They're naturalists. They believe that God never intervenes, that God never does miracles. 
But then since Jesus himself compared his death and resurrection to this event, saying that as Jonah was three days in the belly of the fish, so he would be three days in the heart of the earth, well now, I can assure you that the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is a far bigger miracle than Jonah surviving for three days in the belly of a fish. I guess if you don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus, you won't believe this account either. But Jesus said it was, in fact, a real event. And Jonah is a prefigurement of his own resurrection. And Jonah's emergence from the fish meant that the Gentile mission to bring the good news to the Gentiles was alive and well. You know, we're supposed to imagine here that had God not been acting, Jonah would have drowned in the ocean. The Assyrians would never have been given an opportunity to repent of their sins, and the world would have gone on as before, each man and woman going their own way without God interrupting the course of their lives. But that is precisely not what happened. Instead, we find that God sent a fish, and that Jonah would be sustained, and that eventually he would be rescued from the fish, and that the Assyrian people would hear. The same is true of the resurrection of Jesus. Had Jesus not stepped through the door of the tomb, the Gentiles would have remained in darkness, and all of us today would have died in our own sins. I love the story of Jonah, for it is the story of an intervening God who not only controls all things, but that God does these things so that he might have mercy on many. Thank God that he has done what he has done. John, let me ask you this. Is it true to say that the gospel message of Jesus Christ would never have been heard if it wasn't for a a series of miracles, the greatest of which was the resurrection of Jesus Christ? (laughs) Yes. I mean, everything in the gospel is dependent on miracles. I mean, that's what we're saying. This is not a human gospel. It didn't come as a result of our own imaginings or our clever ability to put things together. It came as a result of God entering into this world and displaying his glory. And we know that whether it's the parting of the Red Sea or uh, being, you know, belched out of the belly of a whale or Jesus rising from the dead or Jesus healing the leper. I mean, everything that God does, he authenticates through miracles. And so uh, we have this marvelous, marvelous certainty that the gospel we have come to believe is a gospel that has come to us from the throne room itself. I mean, that's the good news. That's wonderful. Thanks, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, The Boundless Compassion of God, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Every week in Doubt, a ministry of Back to the Bible Canada, airs a new insightful conversation about issues of life and faith targeted to a young adult audience. These conversations include Christian pastors and leaders from around the globe discussing important topics from a biblical perspective. Topics such as the sanctity of life or forgiveness, sexuality, the church, issues of mental health, loneliness, abuse, always with the intention of offering a biblical response. Join InDoubt on air on the InDoubt.ca website, the InDoubt mobile app, or subscribe for our weekly podcast. We live in a time and place where the daily questions of life and faith are challenging. We believe the Bible will guide us toward truth and, and challenge us to live radically different lives. 
For more information about Endowed or if you'd like to support this ministry, call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit endowed.ca.